We, um, we're in the book of Acts, a, a marvelous portion of scripture, which deals with really all kinds of subjects, including how the church first learned to, to handle finances with integrity and, and with an eye towards the needs of the people around it. Uh, we come to the book of Acts to discern something about the character of the early church. And, and week by week, we're asking the question, where is it that they derived their power and their potency in the ancient world? This morning, we come to, a, I think, just a marvelous text in chapter 8. I'd like to read with you a portion of it in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up with me. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, the one that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture. And told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly came and took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Let's stop there and let's pray together. Oh God, we, we come to the pages of your word with all the fabric of our lives, all all the baggage that we carry, all the assumptions that we make, everything that makes us who we are. And yet sometimes even still, it stops us in our tracks and it amazes us. And I pray that this would be one of those places and one of those moments. That God, you would come bursting through our conceptions and categories. That you would take down those walls that need to come down in our lives and, and say to us this morning what it is we need most to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage, uh, with each passing year, surprises me more and more. It, it amazes me that with, with each fresh reading how, how striking 
the way that the gospel comes and breaks down barriers. And again, we all come to the pages of scripture the same way we come to life with, with our own assumptions. Those things conditioned by, by culture and family and education and and the Bible still has the ability to surprise us. And this is one of the most surprising category-bursting texts that I know of. And I want to look at it under three headings. And you'll find those headings in the back of your order of service, in the notes there. I want to look at it under these headings, the, the inclusivity of Christianity. And then, contrary-wise, the, the exclusivity of Christianity. And then I'd like to look at how those two things can coexist? What's the reason that they both become defining characteristics of the Christian gospel? How can it be both inclusive and exclusive? People would say, I mean, it's impossible, but, but Christianity, to be true, has to be radically both. Let's look first at the category of inclusivity. Who's the main figure in this story? Well, we're told that this is an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, uh, that means a bunch of things. It means he is an African. He, he is part of the North African territory, a, a, a man from a, a, a rich and enduring ancient culture. He is a black man. Ethiopia at that time met the region of the Upper Nile from as far north as about Ashwan to as far south as Khartoum. It's the region that probably we would call, uh, I guess, Nubia in today's language. He was a Nubian. So we know that about him. We know this too, um, that he had gone undergone a, a physical procedure, castration, a common procedure in that day, not a punishment. Actually, the entryway into an occupation in which he had excelled. If you were not a member of the royal family, and yet you wanted to work in the royal household and surrounded by, by the female members of the royal family, the only way that would be allowed was first to undergo the process of castration. If you're going to be in close proximity to them, that was a necessary first step. He's a eunuch. So we notice two things first away. Uh, notice how different that he is from Philip, the other character in the story. Philip is uh, an ordinary middle-class Jewish man. This man is radically different from a different country, a different race. He was from the outermost edges of the civilized world as they knew it at the time. He would have been considered by them a barbarian, not because he was violent and not because there was anything lesser about his culture, but because he was foreign. And not only that, he, he had this, uh, this sense of being altered. He'd been altered physically. He'd been, he'd been altered sexually. He was a radically different, sexually altered barbarian, as different from Philip as possible. Remember, if you were a Jewish man, you got up every morning and you prayed. You were taught to pray from the time you were a child. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. I don't know what you prayed if you were a woman. <laughs> well, women, you know what you pray, but... Lord, I thank you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. Jewish men were told that if you were to participate with people in any of those categories, you would become radically defiled. You would become unclean. And, and this was about as defiling a person 
as possible. Again, not because there's anything endemically wrong with with being African or black or, or have, having undergone, undergone castration or no, but just because that they were other, they were foreign. The second thing to notice is just how much direct intervention was required by God in order to make this meeting happen. Look up in verse 26. It says, an angel of the Lord tells Philip to go to this particular road, this road stretching from Jerusalem to Gaza. So first of all, he relocates him geographically. Go here. And then secondly, in verse 29, it says, when he sees the Ethiopian, the spirit told Philip, go to that very chariot and stay near it. And so Philip ran up beside the chariot. Why run? Because the chariot's moving. So he's, this is a kind of a comical picture. He's running alongside the chariot as the chariot is making its way down the road. And at last, the Ethiopian looks down and invites Philip to come up. And you see what's happening next. I can see you're reading from the Bible. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asks? Understand, this, this is not the sort of thing that happens. I mean, there'd be no precedent. For this in that world. A Jewish man does not hang out with an Ethiopian eunuch, let alone climb on board the chariot. If they had any intersection at all, they, they would have gone to great lengths to avoid each other. The, the way that uh, I guess sometimes people do the first time they're in Toronto and they see somebody wandering on the streets screaming at who knows what at the top of their voice and cross over to the other side of the road. Well, think crossing over. You would cross over to avoid each other. This wouldn't have happened unless God's Spirit said, I want you to go there. I want you to run alongside him. I want you to strike up a conversation in that buggy. And by the way, we're told at the very end, in verse 39, that as soon as the baptism happens, the Spirit took Philip away. Don't know what happened quite, but but it's a word that says literally the Spirit seized him. And it took him away. So this is a divine encounter orchestrated by God from beginning to end. And again, I, I want to suggest that there's, there's some important things that we learn about this divine encounter. First of all, that the Spirit of God must strongly desire that racial and cultural barriers between people be surmounted. That's one of the most obvious themes of the book of Acts. You see it like a thread winding all the way through, over and over again. The Spirit of God is forcing Christians to break past barriers, to get out of their comfort zone, to deal with the very people that everything in their upbringing had said you stay away from, to cross cultural lines, geographic lines, racial lines. Over and over again, the Spirit is the energy that propels them into this kind of activity. And the Bible actually talks about the Spirit being grieved if we don't love what God loves. What this means is that it grieves the heart of God, especially if, if Christians of one race show disdain for people of another race. If Christians of one culture, one socioeconomic group, show contempt or, or, or distance from others, it breaks the heart of God. Understand what a grievous thing that must be. To see Christians existing in their own little silos all over the world, somehow convinced that they've cornered the market on truth and, and those who are outside of their silo are somehow lesser. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. Listen to the voice here. Philip, 
I want you to run up to that radically different, sexually altered man that you would ordinarily have nothing to do with, and I want you to stay close. Stay close to him. That's the language of the Spirit. What might the Spirit be saying to you today? Who do you go to great lengths to avoid in your life? At work? On your street or in your condo? Maybe in your own family? What are the barriers that God and His Spirit is asking you to overcome? Here's another thing we're learning here. And it's important. Again, it's a theme in the book of Acts. It's that Christianity doesn't belong to any one of those cultures more than it belongs to another of the cultures. Again, you see this over and over again. Last week, we saw Samaritans receiving the gospel. Remember, Samaritans weren't just separated geographically from Jewish people, but they hated each other. I mean, Jews and Samaritans had Nothing but utter contempt for each other. Now a black African man gets converted. Someone who's not just racially, but geographically in the far reaches of the world for for that Jewish traveler. Next week we're going to see a a religious leader, a Pharisee, converted. Then we're going to see a Roman converted by the gospel. Over and over again, the book of Acts says there is no one culture to which Christianity belongs. In the very beginning, Jesus said as much. The gospel is for every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. You realize how that puts the Christian gospel at odds with, with all of the other sort of religious systems of the world. You go to colleges or, or universities and you take religion, religious studies 101. They will teach you this, that religion is essentially an extension of or an expression of the indigenous culture in which it was formed. Every culture needs these these sort of cohesive belief systems. This is the glue that holds a culture together. And so, like glue, these myths arise and are invented within particular cultures. They become religions, and they, they hold people together. And they spin out all of these stories that are meant to, to bring unity. Europeans and North Americans were the ones who developed Christianity the way that we have it. South Asians, this is what they teach. South Asian cultures developed Hinduism. Far Eastern cultures developed Buddhism, Confucianism, Shinto. Middle Eastern and and some other South Asian cultures develop Islam. Every culture develops a religion, and that's what religion really is, an expression of culture. I want you to listen, if you will, to, uh, to an African professor at Yale University, a fascinating man. His name, his name is Laman Santa. We, we dealt with him once before, I think. He, he wrote a marvelous book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And he's pointing out something that's really fascinating. He says, of all the major religions, this can be said, except for Christianity. If you look at where their population centers are, their populations are still clustered around the same place where they started. The cultures that developed them are the cultures in which they have flourished. For example, 96%, I know this is an alarming statistic because we we hear about its expansion, but still today, 96% of all Muslims live in the Middle East and North Africa and South Asia. That means Europe and North America, South America, China, the Far East, account for only 4% of the world population of Islam. 
88% of all Buddhists live still in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. But Sama points out that when it comes to Christianity, it's something absolutely different. It's fascinating is going on. 25% of Christians are in South and Central America and the Caribbean. 22% are in continental Africa. 15% of Christians are in Asia, and the number is growing rapidly. Only 12% of Christians actually are in North America, even though we sometimes think of it as, as a European or Western idea. Something like 20% are in Europe. There's no other religion that looks like that. In fact, another scholar said this, that almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about what it is and about what it believes. You know, the Korea went from zero to 40 or 50% Christian in less than 100 years. That China, which is quite a bit big, bigger than Korea, is on the same path today. He gives an example on the African side. He says, this is why it happens that way. Africans have always believed, this is him writing, he's an African, he would know, I don't know. He's all, Africans have always believed that the world was a supernatural place. They believe the world was filled with spirits, good spirits and, and evil spirits. That's the heart of what it meant to be an African, he said. However, there were problems. What do you do about all those evil spirits? They're powerful. They could come into your life or your family. They could seduce you. They could dominate you. They could ruin your crops. They could take your children. What do you do about that? Santa says if, if you're an African and you went off to a secular country or a secular school, Oxford, Cambridge, Princeton, Harvard, whatever, you're an African and you go there. What are they going to do? They're going to say, we're very inclusive here. We're very multicultural. We're happy for you to come and, and to wear your traditional African outfit. You can eat your traditional African food. But you have to accept there are no spirits. Okay? There are no demons in the world. There are no angels. None of that stuff. We are all about science. Empirical, rational evidence. In other words, Santa says, you're saying, we love your culture. But we're going to take the heart out of it. And we're actually going to say that in order to be here, you need to become a late, modern, secular, individualistic Westerner. Otherwise, you're not enlightened and you don't belong. That's not inclusive. That's exploitive. That's ideological. That's crushing. It's soul crushing. By contrast, Santa says when Christianity comes to Africa, it, it both challenges and it affirms Africanness. It says on the one hand, you're right. The world is a supernatural place. There is good and there is evil. And there are forces vying for both. They're out there. But there is one who has overcome evil, Jesus Christ. And through him, you can overcome evil as well. That both affirms your Africanness and yet renews it. So basically, this is what he says, and I love this quote. Everything was so that I could read this quote. Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred, nor their clamor for an invincible savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. And after that, the stars didn't seem little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans.
In other words, Christianity is far more inclusive than secularism. Way more inclusive than the people who like to talk about inclusiveness. It doesn't belong to this culture or that culture. It's not an extension or a product or a function of any culture. It comes down from above. It stands above culture. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to recreate the gospel in the soil of every culture. It is the most inclusive of all religions by far. And it's the most embracing and, and, and celebrating of differences. Okay, we better move. The, the, the exclusivity of Christianity. Uh, this point is way shorter. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Listen, if, if, if you live in the GTA, and, and, and most of you do, uh, you're probably getting all those warm, fuzzy feelings inside. Inclusive, inclusive, inclusive. As Canadians, we love that. It makes us feel great about it. We're so inclusive. What a radically inclusive, embracing, warm, friendly culture we are. Yes, inclusive. And when you get to set up all that empirical evidence, all of those statistics that say, yeah, wow, my, my goodness, I mean, it, it really is inclusive. It, it really is global. I also want you to understand, this is going to be harder, why Christianity is also fundamentally exclusive. And the reason this is a short point is that you don't need a lot of argument to convince you that Christianity makes exclusive claims about itself. You can see them right here in the text. Down in verse 34, the eunuch asks Philip, what does this text mean? He's reading the Isaiah scroll. And he says, yeah, I don't know what it means. Please tell me what's going on here. Now, Philip doesn't respond in, in a good Canadian postmodern politically correct way. Well, what does it mean to you? <laughs> he doesn't say, listen. This is what we would teach in university. You create the meaning of the text yourself. You get to decide what it means. You get to derive from it ideas of right or wrong, and, and you can discern meaning. I can't tell you. So he says, listen, here's the truth. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the hermeneutical principle. That, that's one for our Bible college students in here. It's the interpretive principle. Jesus makes sense of what's going on here. He tells him the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and, and it has a transforming effect in his life. And the first question out of the eunuch's mouth is, hey, why not baptism? The right question. You know what baptism means? It's a sign of what God had just done in his life. It's a sign of conversion. It's, it's a way of recognizing new life. In baptism, he's saying, I, I'm going to stop believing some of that other stuff. I'm going to start believing this. I believe in in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ. Because there is no other name under heaven by which I may be saved. He's not, notice, he's not being told that in order to find God, you, you need to, to serve God in certain ways, or you get to decide how to describe and understand God. Let me push you a little bit further. Because you can create a case that Christianity is not just the most culturally inclusive religion, that it's also the most culturally exclusive religion. Here's the case. Every religion has a founder, prophet, sage, wise teacher. Every one of them is saying, here's how to get to God. The Buddhist way through the Eightfold Path, the Hindu way through the Four Pillars, the Muslim way through adherence to the teaching of Muhammad, the practices that he set down. And yeah, you all go your ways, but 
in a typically postmodern fashion, we like to imagine that they're all leading to the same place at the top. That works except for Christianity, because Jesus didn't really say, here is the way to God. He said, I am the God that everybody is seeking. And when you say that, that's either a better religion or a worse religion than all the other ones, but it's not the same. That's, that's rubbish. Isn't that ironic, though, that, that Christianity can be the most worldwide and culturally diverse, and yet at its heart can make the most exclusive of claims? So let me ask you, and this is the third point, how could that possibly work? I mean, how do you hold those two things together? And I think it comes down to how we understand this story. The way you get to the heart of any story, you know, is to, is to ask the right question. The best way to understand a story is, is to ask the question, let the story answer it. And so let me, let me suggest to you that, that the key question in this story, we haven't asked it yet. Why is that Ethiopian man reading from the scroll of Isaiah? Why is he studying it so intently? What else do we know about him? Pretty amazing things. We know that he's traveled from his kingdom all the way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Why would he do that? Think about who he is. He's a eunuch, and, and he's reached the very top, very heights of power in his society. He's the head treasurer of the queen, which means he's like the CFO, chief financial officer for his country. Way more power than the minister of finance would have in Canada today. Let me tell you that. He's at the top. He'd achieved power and success, and he'd made huge sacrifices in order to get there. Remember, ancient cultures are not, they're not individualistic the way that we are. Today, we find our self-worth based mainly on our own achievements, our own accomplishments. Back then, your worth came from your standing in your family. You only had honor if your family had honor. If your family's standing was good, you were good. The only way to pass on your name, the only way to pass on honor, any kind of legacy, was through children. Here's a man who had climbed to the very heights of power, but in doing so, it was required of him to make the greatest of all sacrifices. He would have no family. In a completely family-dominated world, that made him utterly alone. So again, here's the question. Why would a man embark on a thousand-mile journey, leave his country, leave his culture, leave his religion, leave the corridors of power in his position, knowing that he would likely have that position yanked out from under him while he was gone? Do you have any idea how long it takes to travel a thousand miles in that world? How dangerous it was? Why would he do all of that? And the answer probably is this. There must have been an aching emptiness inside of him. That nothing in his life that he that he had sought could fill. No power, no success. And somehow he'd learned about the God of the Bible. Maybe there's something for me in Jerusalem, he must have thought. So he makes that thousand mile journey to the temple. Here's the other thing that we know. When he got to the temple, after all that day, after after all the travel, all the sacrifice, they wouldn't have let him in. They would not have let him in. 
The temple and all of its worship, all of its practices were carefully relegated and regulated, pardon me, by the, by the laws of Moses. Still a little bit of a puzzle to modern readers, but all those rules about who could get into the temple and what they could do and how you should worship God and, and what the limits were. If you touched a dead body, you couldn't go in because it made you unclean. If you had mold in your house, you couldn't go in. Same reason it made you unclean. All of the rules were meant to get at a powerful spiritual idea. And it would be easy to miss it if we just lock in on the rules. But the idea was this, that God is holy. And you just don't saunter cavalierly into the presence of a holy God without attending to, to the matters of your own life. You need to be clean. Something needs to be done. And unfortunately, among the rules were some that permanently excluded whole categories of people. There were some people who could never go in. Here's one of the rules. No eunuch, no castrated person can enter the temple to worship God. This man goes to all this trouble, travels all this way, only to be excluded and left on the outside. You can imagine what he must have been feeling. And so on his way back home, he's poring over the book of Isaiah. And Acts doesn't actually give us the reason why, but I have a pretty good idea why. We know what he was reading because he, he quotes from it. He's reading out loud. That was common that day. You read out loud. Children read out loud. We know something about the chapter that he's reading from. He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, a part of the Bible that sometimes is called the servant song. As part of that section that he's reading, he would have come to these verses. Let no foreigner say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To those eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Can you imagine his reaction reading those words? That no eunuch say that I'm only like a dry tree unable to bear fruit. To eunuchs I will keep my covenant. I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. He's pouring over this text, sitting there thinking, wait a minute. The only way to pass on your name is to children. I can't have them. What is this everlasting name? What's this talk of never being cut off? What is this? He's being told that in his own cultural terms, there is a salvation that goes beyond success and power and progeny and, and having a family or clan that's large and, and, and prosperous. And all of this is going on. And suddenly this strange Jewish man appears running alongside his chariot. And he leaps up. On, and he hears this passage read. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear who's silent. He didn't open his mouth. Who can speak of his descendants? You didn't notice that first time, did you? I know I didn't. Who can speak of his descendants? Someone who's voluntarily offering up his life, but also voluntarily becoming a eunuch. No descendants. If you read a little further, 53 verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off. Who is this? 
And then there's Philip. Hey, want some help understanding what you're reading? Climb on up. Who is this talking about? Is Isaiah writing about himself or is he writing about someone else? And, and Philip says, oh yes, he's talking about somebody else. Somebody absolutely, incredibly unique. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ, born in a manger, died on the cross. The lamb who was slain, who became a leper to the lepers, a eunuch to the eunuchs. In other words, Jesus Christ was excluded. Don't you see, my African friend? The law was pointing to a spiritual truth. That rejection that you felt in the temple, for which I apologize, but it reminds us that we're all cut off. We're all excluded. Nobody loves God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody loves their neighbor as themselves. Nobody can get in. We're all excluded. But Jesus himself was excluded, cried out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, why have you excluded me, forsaken me? He experienced that moment of utter exclusion, what we deserve. Excluded so that we could be brought in, made unclean so that we could be cleaned. We could never ever do it for ourselves. We could never cleanse ourselves, never be good enough, but he does it for us. That's the good news of Jesus. And so here's the question. Why is the most inclusive thing about Christianity also the most exclusive? Or if you want to ask it a different way, why would the exclusivity of Christianity bring about this radical inclusiveness? Let me ask you a question then. This is how rabbis did it. They answered they answer questions with more questions. But what if salvation was like this? What if God came down like a general and said, everybody who obeys what I tell you, you will be blessed and successful. What if salvation was from a strong God to strong people who can summon up their strength and be obedient as could possibly be? It was from the strong to the strong. That's how salvation operates. Christianity would be a religion of law. It would be about compliance. It would tell you what to eat, how to dress, who to associate with, where you could work, and that would destroy all cultures. For you to become Christian, you'd have to completely leave that all behind. That's not the way of the gospel. That's not Christianity. In true Christianity, God's greatest glory is the way he was willing to set aside all glory. His greatest beauty is the way that he was willing to lose his beauty. He became weak and he died. That's why, and you see it in your notes, it's a strange expression, but there is a weakness at the heart of Christianity. It's a religion not just of truth, but truth spoken tenderly in love. There is a softness and there is a hardness about Christianity. And there's weakness in the middle of the omnipotence and majesty of God. And so it makes perfect sense to see Christianity as that kind of flexible truth, inclusive and yet radically exclusive. It's not in law-keeping, it's grace. The gospel doesn't start with strength, it starts with weakness. It says, a mighty God became weak so that you could receive salvation. And you can only receive it if you become humble yourself. Admit that you're weak. Christianity is not for the strong. It's for the people who know that they're not. For those who admit they're weak and then they receive by grace. And, and then they're affirmed to the skies. They're valued by God's love. And then what that means 
What that means is you can never feel superior to anybody else. I mean, God just breaks through all of that. And the key to all of this, the heart of the Bible, is the idea of substitution and sacrifice. We're just going to end on those two words. And then we're going to come to the table. And we're going to honor what those two words meant for Jesus and for us. Everything in the Bible is about this. Salvation is not something that we accomplish. But Jesus comes in our place as a substitute to do what's required. Sometimes the Bible talks about this in the language of the battlefield. He fought the powers of sin and death for us, and he has overcome. The victory is his. Sometimes we use the, the, the language of the marketplace. He paid the price. He paid our debt. Sometimes he uses the language of the temple, that, that he was the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be cleansed and renewed in his sight. Sometimes it's the language of the law court. He stood in our place, took our judgment, took the penalty. But running through every single one of those themes and vocabularies is the idea of substitution. It is the most compelling, electrifying, wonderful plot line of any story that someone dies in order to save someone else. There is no more compelling, life-changing, transforming storyline than that. And if you know that someone has done it for you, there's nothing that changes you more than that. How much more will you become an agent for, for radical racial reconciliation? For the spread of the gospel? How much more transformed will you be if you grasp that substitution was for you and you base your life on it? Ponder that when you hold bread and drink a cup. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your spirit breaks through all of these barriers and surmounts all these obstacles. And the gospel gives us the, the wherewithal to do that. We pray that you would help us to find the the courage to be real agents for peace and healing and justice in this world because we're following in the footsteps of your son, the Prince of Peace. And when we look at what he did for us and how it's changed the very structure of our identity of who we are. God, we thank you and we ask you that you would accomplish all of this in our lives. In the name of the one who came not to be served but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. In his name we pray. Amen.